0: Good day. You're tuned into Free City Radio. Uh, this is the podcast, uh, weekly podcast of Free City Radio uh, out of Montreal. I'm your host, uh, Stefan Christoph. Thank you so much for being with us. It is the 16th of March, and this is the 33rd edition of Free City Radio. Uh, we uh, broadcast every week on Tuesdays. Um, if you uh, like what you're hearing, uh, please subscribe, of course, uh, to Free City Radio. Uh, this is a podcast produced with love, uh, trying to highlight uh, the intersections of art and activism, but also to uh, give voice to social movements, um, both locally and globally, social movements for, for justice. Today on the show to start, I'm going to be uh, sharing excerpts of um, a couple of interviews that I did towards um, an important campaign that's going on in the city around the Immigrant Workers' Centre. This is a campaign to support essential frontline workers, uh, workers who are holding down a lot of essential services in the context of the pandemic But that workforce includes a lot of people without papers, uh, a lot of people who are asylum seekers, and that's happening in a context where there is a lot of exploitation. Um, The Immigrant Workers' Centre has been particularly focusing on Dollarama workers. Uh, Those are warehouse workers. Um, This is for the main hub, the main distribution centre for Dollarama shops across North America, that's in Montreal. I've been there, um, it's a 24-hour work uh, place. So there's three shifts and the place is operating seven days a week. Um, so there's a lot of context where uh, Dollarama workers are really pushing um, to hold down this distribution center, uh, which was declared an essential service by the Quebec government in the spring of 2020 in the context of the pandemic. Um, But many of these workers are precarious. So Dollarama doesn't employ them directly. They use uh, these organizations called placement agencies, uh, which dole out contracts and then actually take a cut from the pay that is given from Dollarama for these workers. These placement agencies target and recruit uh, non-status people, uh, asylum seekers, people with precarious status because of... The context, um, their situation, essentially on a legal level, uh, creates a condition where they can be more easily exploited. Um, So I think it's really important to think about um, this context and the fact that there is this organized system of exploitation for essential frontline workers. This is just one example the Dollarama case. Um, And so there's been a lot of actions, pickets, uh, different initiatives to support these workers that have been taking place here in Montreal. And I produced um, a segment for a sister podcast in New York called Audio Interference. That is the podcast of the Interference Archive that's in Brooklyn. And um, I basically uh, recorded uh, two voices one is uh, Mustafa Hanawi, uh, who is uh, an organizer with the Immigrant Workers' Center, who gives some context and background on the campaign to support Dollarama workers. Um, so this is a segment of the audio that I produced for interference audio interference uh, podcast uh, that I wanted to share here. So here we go.
1: So the issues that, that these workers face, just to give a little context, so Dollarama is multinational corporation. Uh it operates now in Latin America. It has part ownership by Bain Capital, which is uh Mitt Romney's hedge fund. Um and it's a corporation that employs around twenty thousand workers. And most of its operations in terms of its warehousing and distribution is similar to that of uh let's say Amazon or uh, Walmart, right? So this very hyper neoliberal uh, version of just-in-time distribution of goods, right? So uh, that means that a lot of these workers are temp workers uh, in the distribution center. Almost 90% of them are. It is uh, low wages precarious so meaning that uh, to be able to fulfill that most of these workers are racialized they're Haitian uh West African and uh you know living and working uh under the most uh harsh conditions without uh basic health and safety equipment uh they're non-unionized they don't have uh access to their basic rights uh because they're temp workers A lot of the time uh, they live in fear because they don't know if they're going to have the job the next day so those were the conditions sort of prior to the pandemic and what happened during the pandemic as what we saw in in amazon Mm -hmm. uh, and other large workplaces that became sites of outbreaks uh, as dollarama in quebec was declared uh, an essential service uh, because it does sell uh, food items And as a result, when you have a thousand people in a badly organized workplace, uh, an employer that refuses to respect people's health and safety rights prior to the pandemic only becomes exasperated during the pandemic. And what we were fighting around and what workers were organizing around was essentially the right to not get sick, essentially the right to be able to live. And... um, Unfortunately, a lot of these workers knew that this was going to happen and that workers were going to test positive. These are large workplaces where the turnover is like 20 people a day, new workers, because the conditions are so bad. They weren't given proper health and safety equipment. Uh, They were not given masks or gloves. Uh, The equipment wasn't sanitized. Dollarama kept a policy of secrecy in terms of people who have tested positive. So workers on the site didn't even know if other workers had had it. Uh, they just know that workers were calling in sick, were not showing up. And many felt there was a racialized aspect to it, that many of the white Quebec wall workers were staying at home, while many of the immigrant workers uh, uh, who are mostly black were still going into work. And so the Immigrant Workers Center, we've been working with these workers for a number of years, but uh, the urgency came up during the pandemic because we knew there was going to be an outbreak. And we saw what happened in Amazon, uh, where a number of warehouses uh, and fulfillment centers, people had tested positive. Uh, we were beginning to see the same thing, right? And, and so uh, the Immigrant Workers Center, we worked with workers and organizers to actually to go out and flyer. Uh, the workplace Uh, and then we had workers call in to the Labor Standards Commission and also to the Department of Public Health here in Quebec here in Quebec uh, to demand changes. Unfortunately, the minimum um, uh, is actually really below maybe what workers would feel safe. So we said we're still going to fight and push around. Uh, We had workers speak up and organize a press conference uh where workers explained the horrible work conditions that they were facing that they weren't being able to work two meters apart uh that when cleaners were called in sick there was no replacement uh there was no extra washing stations uh there was no sanitization between shifts of the equipment um and no uh, gloves or masks and through the pressure we saw slowly beginning to change so as of a week ago or two weeks ago uh, Dollarama began providing uh, masks to all its workers and extra sanitization and disinfection of the equipment Uh, especially because these workplaces these warehouses are giant rooms with no ventilation uh, where hundreds of people are just passing each other uh, eight hours a day uh, and so many of the workers are still complaining that it doesn't go far enough. So that's one of the things we're beginning to work on is that to give a lot of these workers the right to stay home uh, and also to either declare it as a non-essential service or uh, to reduce the number of workers to make sure that it that it's safe. But ultimately, it goes down to other issues as well, where uh, if workers don't feel that they have a permanent job, we know this is the case with two workers where someone had tested positive, but they had showed up to work because they were afraid they were going to lose their job if they just stayed at home. So that's kind of fear that workers are living in. So those are like the, the major issues that we're, we're fighting around still to this, to this moment with workers and improving the the conditions also in the different
0: stores itself. That was Mustafa Hanawi from the Immigrant Workers' Centre. This is an excerpt of a segment that I produced um, for Audio Interference, which is the podcast of the Interference Archive in Brooklyn. Um, So I just wanted to uh, share that excerpt with you. Um, This is an attempt to try to communicate uh, not only the campaign to support Dollarama essential workers, but also to think about uh, the context of the ways that asylum seekers and non-status people are exploited in their place of work. Um, I also uh, spoke with Mohamed Berry, uh, who is a Ghanaian community organizer in Montreal. He was an asylum seeker, um, but he won his status, but he continues to campaign for regularization for all non-status people and campaign for the rights of essential workers who have precarious immigration status. Mohamed Berry has been very brave to speak out about his struggle and his situation, um, so I'm really happy to share his voice here on Free City Radio, and I think he gives some important context and background to the intersections between precarious status, essential workers, and workplace exploitation and a story that is very hidden in the mainstream media. So here's Mohammed Berry.
2: I've been fighting for migrant rights, especially asylum seekers, for a long time, more than five years now. So it's a bit weird sometimes because uh, asylum seekers are, seekers are exploited, you know. They don't have the right, what they're supposed to get. And they don't have access to proper training um, in different warehouses. They don't have the proper equipment. Mm -hmm. And they are paid uh, minimum wage always or sometimes below minimum wage, Mm -hmm. which is uh, unfair.
0: We have been seeing in the press a lot of criticisms of the Dollarama, which is a dollar store chain in Quebec and Canada for the practices at their warehouse, but there's other stores that use similar warehouse distribution centers. I'm wondering if you could just talk about um, the fact that a lot of asylum seekers are employed in these warehouses. And also, given that you worked in one, can you describe the environment, the, describe how it looks?
2: Um, the Festival mm-hmm. they don't hire people, uh, the employees, yeah. they they hire them through the, the agency's placement, which uh, uh makes them always precarious. Mm-hmm. And it's overcrowded there, I don't know right now, but it's, um, where I, when I was working there, it's overcrowded, mm-hmm. the the equipment is not and as i said they don't train the, the employees properly mm-hmm. and there's no air conditioner in uh, in summer it's really really hot inside a lot of dust um, which is not good to for the health and they take advantage of uh, people's status because a lot of day uh, uh, mm-hmm. employees are um, newcomers asylum seekers mm-hmm. or they are working on the ground they, they so they cannot complain and they're yeah. taking advantage of that to exploit them if without those people they cannot the such a companies like dollarama are gonna be closed mm-hmm. First, mm-hmm. but which is uh, which is not good for the government not so they support the companies
0: Well, a lot of people, like, sorry, uh, just to go back on what you're saying. So a lot of people who are asylum seekers from West Africa specifically come here and are rejected. uh, But then they're still living in the city and need work. So these employment agencies that you described basically are um, then recruiting asylum seekers who are refused for their workplaces,
2: correct? Yeah, it is. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they are refused because they still have some, t- some options, but cause since they are waiting for their status, they cannot complain, they cannot claim any right. You know, they are scared. Even if they have right, they don't know their right, you know, and the companies take ad- take advantage of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Companies like Dollarama.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: So, in in a lot of these placement agencies, there's a lot of workers from West Africa, from the Caribbean, from different parts in the world. Like these agencies are recruiting from refugee communities,
2: from immigrant communities, correct? Yeah. But these uh, agency placement, they always recruit the people which who are living uh, in precarious. They don't let them have an established job, always they play the game because if they, they know if the, the unemployed works for like ninety days at the same place. Yeah. It's supposed to be hired. But yeah. they they play the game, if you work yeah. eighty five or eighty days, then yeah. they said there's no job anymore. Yeah. So they sent you back home for three days or five days. They sent you back in order for you to lose uh, your right.
0: So there's no permanent work then? No. Okay, and this is this is basically like a series of contracts so that the company mm-hmm. doesn't have to take legal responsibility over the worker.
2: Exactly, the, it's a uh, way of avoiding to give them the right, but like insurance, health insurance, the collective insurance, and, and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of things. Uh, vacation, all these things they are losing, <laughs> um, and they they still have them, you know. They don't have a uh, permanent. They will ne- they will still uh, looking for a job, always <laughs> looking for a job, mm-hmm. and they'll never be established. The workers, you know. the workers will won't be established. You they know. won't be yeah. 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 yeah even if the company wants uh, sometime the company wants hiring the agency say no you have to work six months at least for us in order to be hired by the company wow mm.
0: so these placement agencies are sort of like middlemen
2: yeah wow. they're they coyotes coyotes
0: okay <laughs> so so you're from Guinea from Kanakri um, and you've been talking about experiences that you're describing in workplaces uh that a lot of refugees have been dealing with but also you've been talking about the importance of refugees getting papers yeah um so can you talk a bit about how how is this connected how is the the rights of workers and and specifically refugee workers their rights in the workplace how is that connected to their rights for status just for for people who are listening
2: um Actually, they, they right, they they're exploited at the work. They're contributing in every single step of the dec- the economic of this country. They're con- contributing to the well-being of the society because yeah. if you see the pandemic, the the self-isolation happened, uh, the curfew happened because some people are outside doing the they, work. Yeah, they're doing the work mm-hmm. in order to others to get their food on table. In this, that's why that's the a great contribution it is not neglectable that's, yeah that's why they they must be re- regularized mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: well let's talk about that you've been supporting you've been supporting the movement for status why is that important for you and how is it connected to worker
2: rights um status is uh is, is really important very very important for migrants for those who are uh, uh, living live in precarious because precarious once the workers. precarious workers and once they have their status they have a right to study to have a decent work to yeah. have a decent training whatever they want to take so they won't be exploited they have right to claim their right but if they don't have status even if they have the right they, they avoid claiming whenever they because they are scared it to impact their file. Yeah, I understand. Mm-hmm. So you're saying
0: that workers are scared to ask for their rights because they don't have status?
2: Yeah, they, they're scared it, uh, it to impact their mm-hmm. file negatively, they're scared to be rejected because of that.
0: So they're in, in that case, then, they're working in warehouses?
2: They're working in warehouses, they don't have the, all their right. Even if they know, yeah. they cannot c- claim their right. Sure. Yeah.
0: And in Montreal, we're talking about thousands and thousands of
2: people. A lot of people here, especially from Africa, mm-hmm. a lot of people been working here for years, for eight years, ten years, without status. So. You have been organizing asylum
0: seekers from Guinea specifically to demand status, Mm. but also having known you a bit, I know that within this effort to ask for status for Ghanaians, you've been also talking about um, the rights of Ghanaian workers. The two are sort of connected. But can you talk about the Ghanaian campaign? Why did you start this?
2: Uh. I started this because it is very important and a lot of people, a lot of Guinean people um, are rejected and they were uh, in deporting Canada, yeah. Yeah, they were in Canada, they were deporting in mass. A lot of people have been deported, whether we know or not, because uh, I, I know only those who are members of uh, the committee, but a lot of people call me when they face deportation or they have a deportation order, or they when they are rejected, they call me to know what what is next, because they call the lawyer, um, the lawyer don't answer them, or they don't call them back. They, they go to the office, they say no, you know, we're doing uh, um we're working on the file, but actually they are not.
0: So I think a lot of people, they don't understand that there are many asylum seekers in Canada who are facing deportation, yeah. particularly from West Africa.
2: Yes. In fact, I think it's the people they don't know because a lot of people, they don't show up to the demonstration or they don't, they don't know about the organizations, associations in Montreal. Um, that's why oh, they're scared to, to, to just to talk. They don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Even uh, between Guineans, people like to hide it because they're scared, you know, because a lot of people have been denounced, denounced with immigration Meaning by, like, by their friends. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: like, people without papers, somebody will call immigration and say, oh, there's a person without papers who lives at this place.
2: Yeah, exactly. They, they avoid that, you know. That's why they don't want to talk about... Their status. their status, but
0: you're you're trying to convince asylum seekers to speak out and for non-status people to speak out in public and say together that they need status.
2: Yeah, but for me, um, it's not a good idea not to talk about it because it's not the fact uh, the fact of you talk about it that you're gonna be rejected or you're go- you're going to be deported. It depends. Yeah. On how you are working for your file, on how the what the agent is doing. As long as uh, they reject you, you, you can do it. Another option, always. Yeah. yeah, you have something else to do. Got it. Yeah, you have to to speak out to get sorted. If you don't speak, nobody knows what's going on. Yeah, and you will be the victim. <laughs> So instead
0: you're telling people to speak out. Exactly. For their working rights and for their rights as refugees.
2: Exactly, yeah. Thank you, Mohammed. You're welcome. That
0: was Mohammed Berry from the Ghanaian Committee uh, for Status um, that has been really pushing hard to highlight um, the uh, situation where a lot of essential frontline workers are asylum seekers and are uh, really working hard to um, hold up a lot of essential services in the context of the pandemic, but um, in fact are being exploited. Their pay is low or their conditions are dangerous. So um, this is Free City Radio. Uh, it is the 33rd edition. It is the 16th of March. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph, in Montreal. Thanks for listening. Um, next, I just wanted to go to uh, a piece of music. Um, this is a track by Asher Gemesde, who is um, a percussionist, musician, an activist in South Africa, who recently made a mix for Free City Radio. You can find that on our SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash Free City Radio. Asher is a, a great musician. His album that came out last year, Dialectic Soul, is just beautiful. Um, so this is one of the tracks from that album. That was a piece by Asher Gemezde, who is a South African-based percussionist and jazz musician. His album last year, Dialectic Soul, is just awesome, and that's a piece from that album. This is Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. This is the 33rd edition. Next on the program, uh, we're going to be going to an interview with Tim McSorley, who works with the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group uh, here in Canada. There was a very important letter that this organization co-published with a number of uh, labor unions, community groups, and signed by many individuals to protest um, a new move uh, by the Canadian government, the liberal government, to use existing anti-terror legislation uh, to place far-right white supremacist organizations on what is called the list of terrorist organizations. Now, this interview, I think, really raises a critical point about looking at the need to understand the problematics of the list of terrorist organizations and the way that this list has been used for many years as a tool of repression, towards racialized communities, both locally and internationally, and the ways that the groups and organizations on this list actually um, are often uh, organizations involved in the arc of anti-colonial struggle uh, within various contexts in the world. So, existing organizations that have been put onto this list uh, include the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, um leftist uh, guerrilla groups in Latin America, um, also um, the New People's Army in the Philippines, uh, which is a, a, a communist armed organization, uh, the Lebanese group Hezbollah. Um, so the critiques of this list over the years uh, were numerous. One of them was the fact that uh, there is very little recourse legally to challenge being on that list. Uh, which is important Um, and also that mechanism of classifying terrorist organizations basically removes any possibility of having an honest discussion about the nature the context the origins of such organizations and how they come about and the dynamics of power involved if we're thinking about colonialism if we're thinking about um, the dominant powers in the world Um, and You know, we can think back to the history of many organizations that were involved in liberation struggles that at the time were classified as terrorist organizations. For example, uh, groups fighting against apartheid in South Africa, uh, as one example. The critique of the further entrenchment of this list in Canada is really rooted in uh, the problematics of this list as it stands, and the fact that... um, using the list to target violent right-wing organizations further legitimizes the list. Um, So the argument from the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group in this letter that was jointly published with a number of individuals and organizations is that uh, yes, action must be taken against uh, white supremacist and racist organizations, but using a list that in its essence, this list, existing one, the list of terrorist organizations, uh, is using a tool that itself is a tool of white supremacy and uh, racism on an institutional level. Um, Because up until now, that list, and I can say this directly, having worked with people who have uh, been questioned by intelligence services in Canada due to uh, having social relations with individuals that are linked in the Global South to a particular organization that has been listed as terrorist, quote unquote, in Canada. Now, there's a lot of layers here, but the point is really important, which is that this list is illegitimate and um, critiquing this list as a process is important and uh, confusing Uh, various struggles is not going to get us anywhere. Um, So opposing white supremacy and opposing far-right organizations and taking action against the violent threat that they pose is important, but using this list to do that is not a good tactic or strategy. So that is what this discussion with Tim McSorley from the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group explores, and I think this is a very important subject and one that Involves a a bunch of layers of nuance that is difficult for the mainstream media to often report on, um, given the the depth of um, sort of contextual political thinking needed to address this issue thoroughly. So here's my conversation with Tim McSorley from the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group.
3: So the impetus of the letter was actually uh, ICLMG and also working with Aziza Kanji, who's a a legal academic and scholar and journalist, and who also works at the Noor Cultural Centre in Ontario. Um, And essentially uh, the genesis of the letter came from uh, the decision of the Canadian government to use um, existing anti-terrorism laws. So these are laws that were already on the books but to expand its use to be used against white supremacist organizations. And while you know, we're, it's important that the government signals and takes actions to confront what is clearly a, a growing and under um, examined threat from uh, white supremacist and hate-based uh, violent organizations in Canada, um, we have deep concerns about the use of a tool like the anti-terrorism list um, in the pursuit of, a, of an uh, anti-racist, you know, goal. Um, essentially because the list itself has led to, uh, has, has emboldened and has supported uh, racist national security policies in Canada. Um, and also that the list itself is rooted in fundamental issues around um, civil liberties and, and human rights, including the use of secret evidence, mm-hmm. uh, inability to challenge the case brought against you. So, um, so there's two reasons, main reasons why we're, we're deeply concerned, and the result is that our worry would be that this law, the further use of this law will do little to, in the long run, prevent the growth of a, of a racist society and bring about an anti-racist society, but rather would, um, in fact, legitimize the use of these laws in different ways going forward, um, way beyond the use against white supremacist organizations.
0: So for people who aren't familiar, can you break down what is this
3: law you're talking about? For sure. So um, the law we're talking about is the a part of the criminal code. Um, I think it's 83.05 of the Canadian criminal code. Mm. And it allows the Canadian government to establish a, a list of terrorist entities. Um, so the list is established. It's an administrative process. So it's uh, it's the public safety minister who's allowed to um, add organizations to this list based on Um, suggestions and and, uh, advice, rather, from uh, other government bodies, so including the RCMP and and, and the Canadian Security Intelligence Service and and other um, national security organizations. Um, And the the Minister has to have, uh, um, has to reasonably believe that these organizations have engaged in uh, terrorist activities. And if they believe that, they can place the groups on the list without Mm -hmm you know, prior consultation, there's no charges laid. It's a decision by the minister to add them. Um, and once they're added, the impact is that it would have, it would limit, it would list them as a terrorist entity and therefore um, it would limit uh, their ability to collect funds in Canada for individuals to provide them support or to provide them with resources. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for breaking that down. And I, I just want to underline the lack of legislative or legal process around the listing of organizations.
3: Yeah, exactly. So when a group is listed, they're not informed um, beforehand, they're only informed once they're placed on the list. And so the evidence that's being considered to place them on the list, um, well, uh, on the first hand, um, it doesn't have to meet the standard of what, we would, cons- what would be uh, admissible evidence in, in a criminal court. Um, uh, the minister is allowed to consider other information. And all that information is also kept secret. Um, and so once they're listed, an organization can ask to be removed and the minister would then review mm-hmm. um, the, the listing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually the organization could also bring it to court. Um, but because of rules around access to confidential evidence and, and sensitive evidence, mm-hmm. they would never be able to have access to the full information being used against them. Yeah. Um, and in fact, what we've seen in, in, in one uh, occasion with a charity called IRFAN, that was listed as a terrorist entity they in fact uh, then didn't even have resources to be able to challenge their listing because they didn't ha- they weren't able to um, raise funds because they were listed as a as a terrorist entity
0: so uh, just to be clear erfang Ur- is the islamic relief charity uh, yeah so
3: it's a, it, i'll look it up and see islamic relief um, uh, for families and the needy
0: okay yeah so so, so, yeah, I remember that. And um, the point being, though, I mean, just in terms of understanding that list, um, it seems that a lot of the implication or the administration or the the, the application of this list has often happened in a colonial context, uh, in a neo-colonial context, or let's say a racialized uh, uh, context also in, in terms of domestic policy, because uh, this list has been applied in disproportionate and uh, ways, and also without legal recourse. That uh, and this impacts uh, diasporic communities, um, and there's not a lot of legal recourse to address these questions. So organizations like Hezbollah or the Palestinian Front, for, uh, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and and Kurdish organizations, many others, are listed. But there's there's not really a lot of solid legal process around that. If, if if there's any gaps in what I'm saying, please fill it in.
3: No, I I think you're you know you're you're hitting exactly right. And so when we look at the list, the vast majority um, I don't have the percentage in front of me right now, but are either uh, are groups that are associated either you know with the Islamic organizations or from Muslim countries or Muslim uh, or Muslim-linked organizations. Um, other than those, the vast majority of the rest are are also, you know, would be considered racialized organizations operate, you know, that are in a very particular, you know, and complex political context. And it also raises questions in terms of, um, you know, when the government's talking about who they're negotiating with on an international level or who's recognized. So, for example, in Colombia, FARC are considered uh, are still considered terrorist entities in Canada, um, but they've been in negotiations with the Colombian government in order to move towards a peace process, and, and we yeah. see that in other countries as well. So, um, so definitely the you know what you brought up about it being you know operating in a in a context of colonialism and uh, primarily impacting racialized communities is exactly the concern you know our concern uh, and the concern in the letter is is overall no matter who it's used against there will be problems. But specifically that it's been used historically in this way to um to, uh, essentially reduce what are very complex situations to this group is a terrorist entity and this group is not. Um, on, on other occasions, we believe it's also served political purposes and political agendas. Mm-hmm. And so going forward, now that um it's been used to add white supremacist groups, there's a there's a deep question about whether that further legitimizes the list mm-hmm. um, and we can talk a bit more about why that is later, but that it would then be able to be used for even broader political purposes. So for example, there's been you know efforts in the past to define indigenous land defenders as terrorists. Um, could you know this you know broadening of the idea and broadening of use and, and this almost resurgence in support for the terrorist entities list lead the future government to add indigenous land defenders, you know members of the, of the movement for black lives, and and others who you know, on a regular basis, um, are deemed by uh, uh, you know right wing commentators and politicians as being you know extremists and and you know uh, even terrorists.
0: Yeah. So just to understand um, a bit more, um, thank you so much, Tim McSorley from the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group for going over this. Um, so I mean, this list in a lot of ways. Um, has been challenged quite significantly um, since uh, 9-11 for a lot of the reasons that you've outlined. Um, So today, um, it it seems that almost the the use of this list as a tool for um, tracking far-right racist organizations, uh, the concern that you're expressing is that this actually just legitimizes an illegit process around this yes. anti-terror legislation um, rather than specifically addressing with urgency uh, that you've already addressed the importance of ch- challenging and 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 dislocating white supremacist organizations specifically
3: exactly um, yeah and I, I think there's there's two important things there one is that um, you know the there is, as you said, an urgent need that the government take action. And it does signal that the government is taking it more seriously because in our current context, um, you know, I I think there's a deeper discussion on that. But when we're talking about what poses the most significant threats to our safety, most people look to terrorism and the idea of terrorism. And Mm -hmm. so if these white supremacist organizations are posing a deep threat to our society, which they are, then they should be labeled as terrorists, as others are, and therefore put on the terrorist entities list. So in that logic, it makes sense. But at the same time, we've also seen terrorism used as a political uh, tool in order to undermine, you know, political opponents, um, to pursue colonial agendas, both within Canada and internationally. And so, um, you know, it's important that, the threat is taken seriously, but by using anti-terrorism tools in that way, um, it puts us in a situation where it's reinforcing this whole history and almost, um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. what would the word be? But you know, basically creating a new acceptance for them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we've also seen is that some organizations that have in the past strongly denounced the anti-terrorism uh, anti-terrorism laws and the terrorist entities list. Have now supported its use against uh, the Proud Boys mm. um, for for various reasons, and I think it's it does put organizations in a difficult situation because they there is a need for the government to act, but at the same time there is a con- that's where this concern of legitimizing the use of these tools com- comes for is that the next time they're used in a way.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, that uh, we, as you know, as as anti-racist organizers and 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 civil liberties, you know, defenders, object, it will, it will likely that be that much harder to criticize the government because yeah. the law has been supported in another, you know, in, in another context, and so that that's part of the concern about how we move forward from from here.
0: Well, one. Thank you so much for breaking that down. I mean one one I one idea that I've heard being discussed around this or one critique of the government's approach is why aren't isn't there a specific law being made to address armed or even not armed white supremacist organizations as opposed to just using existing legislation. It it in a way you could question is is the government taking this seriously enough. I mean, what's your take on that?
3: Well, for ISMG, our, our our expertise isn't on you know on uh, on anti hate legislation in Canada. So we're looking to what other groups are saying as well. But in our experience with anti terrorism laws, our, our our opposition to to even the the first anti terrorism law, anti terrorism act that was brought in in two thousand one, has always been that there are other. Um, you know, parts of the criminal code and other laws on the books that can be used against people engaging in violent activities, um, individuals that are conspiring to commit violent activities, mm-hmm. um, the, put, uh, the, the putting of resources towards those activities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in the context of fighting these violent um, white supremacist organizations, we would argue that the, the first thing we need to do is look at, and we, we believe that there that there are laws on the books that could be used against these organizations, um, outside of anti-terrorism laws, if the if you know the government were to enforce them adequately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that it's so it's an issue of enforcement of what's already on the books and evaluating. And that's not to say that there might be some weaknesses you know, there's been discussion around how the conservative government, previous conservative government repealed, I believe it was section 13 of the the, uh, Human Rights Act that basically um, laid out uh, laws against hate speech online. Mm. And so, um, uh, you know, there may be uh, areas to reinforce Canada's anti-hate legislation, um, but using anti-terrorism laws to do so, and also, you know, and then looking at like, should we be creating other lists apart from the Terra list? You know, looking at how the Terra list has been used, we would be, you know, we'd be skeptical of something like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but but clearly something needs to be done. And it's actually going forward, one of the things we're going to be looking at and hoping to put out is, uh, is an analysis and looking at, again, where, um, what parts mm-hmm. of the criminal code, you know, would serve the same mm-hmm. purpose, but at the same mm-hmm. time, Uh, not use secret evidence, not go through just an administrative process. And that would actually, um, you know, combat uh, white supremacist groups, but also, um, you know, uh, protect civil liberties.
0: Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for breaking that down. So just, can you just recap um, the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group, um, Tim, which you work with? Um, Can you just recap this letter you put out, where people can find it and just, one or two key points.
3: Definitely, yeah. So the letter we put out is, is a joint letter um, signed by uh, over uh, more than 175 individuals and organizations uh, that was sent to pri- all the uh, federal party leaders um, because all federal parties voted in favor of, of, of the use of the uh, the terrorist list uh, against um, um, you know earlier in January. And people can find that on iclmg.ca on our website. Um, mm-hmm. If they're interested, they can also sign up uh, to our uh, bi-weekly newsletter to get more information on this and other campaigns by clicking on the link to our, our news digest. Mm-hmm. And really the, the issue here is that we need to be fighting for, a, for an anti-racist society. Um, mm-hmm. But tools that have been uh, that have come about Um, in the, you know, quote unquote, war on terror, and that have been used to um, target racialized organizations in the past, um, and that violate our, you know, fundamental rights, can't be Mm -hmm. rehabilitated in the fight against racism. And we need to be looking to um, ensure that in the pursuit of these organizations, um, that uh, we're doing it in a way that doesn't, you know, um, uh, put uh, other groups in danger. Um, Hmm. and, you know, I, and part of that, something I didn't mention is also that we need to be looking at the other parts of criminal code, but we also have to be actively looking at things outside of, you know, criminal, uh, legislation outside of, you know, uh, police enforcement and looking at how, you know, in conjunction with abolitionists and, and decarceral groups that we're, that we're talking about, you know, creating a a more just society. It's not just an issue of, of better policing. Um, yeah, uh, But, you know, but right now, that's the context that we're that we're talking about, too.
0: That was a conversation with Tim McSorley from the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group in Ottawa Uh, that was uh, concerning a very important letter initiative that um, the organization ICLMG um, uh, put together. The letter is called Open Letter to Federal Leaders. Do not expand anti-terrorism laws in the name of anti-racism. And so there has been over 175 individuals and organizations that have signed this letter. You can check it out at iclmg.ca. This has been Free City Radio. Uh, this is the 33rd edition. It is the 16th of March. Thank you for tuning in. This is Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. Free City Radio, we're on Apple Podcasts. Also, uh, if you want to email me, I'm at s-t-e-f-a-n dot c-h-r-i-s-t-o-f-f. I'm on Twitter at spirodon, s-p-i-r-o-d-o-n. Thank you uh, for listening. And um, I'm going to finish the broadcast today with a piece by Tanya Iyer, uh, who is a local musician and released a beautiful album this year, which I was lucky enough to pick up on vinyl. Um, I just uh, love Tanya Eyer's work. Um, and we are going to be uh, hearing uh, the piece Look Up to the Light by Tanya Eyer. This has been Free City Radio. Uh, join us again next week. Take care.